What does it mean for work to have meaning? It can mean a lot of things, actually. And it can show up differently for everyone. But when it shows up, the effect is undeniable. With meaningful work, employees are seven times more engaged, 64% more fulfilled on the job, and 69% less likely to leave the company. Those numbers come from today's guest on the Desuckify Work podcast, Tamara Miles. Tamara is an author, consultant, speaker, and researcher who is currently working on her next book, More Than a Paycheck, How Leaders Can Answer the Growing Demand for Meaning at Work, set to be published in early 2025. During the show, we talked about the 10 principles of highly meaningful work and how they don't just apply to office-based careers. They're pretty universal. We spoke about how one of those principles, onboarding, is so underappreciated and yet so critical. And we touched on one of my favorite areas, the importance of recognizing possibility and nurturing potential in everyone. We could do a whole show on just that alone. Tamara is incredibly smart, thoughtful, and 1 billion percent committed to helping people find meaning in their work. You should listen to her. So let's do that. Shall we? Okay, Tamara Miles, welcome to the Desuckify Work Podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. I mean, I think where you spend a lot of your time professionally just syncs up so nicely with what I'm trying to do to make the world of work better. I think you have a really nice focus. So with that said, do you mind giving us a little bit of your background of <clears throat> what you do for work and, and a little bit of how you came to be doing it? Yeah, sure. I would love to. So I wear like three hats. Okay. There's like three main things that I focus on. One is my uh, consulting business mm-hmm. where I do a lot of training, facilitating, speaking on workplace well-being, on meaning at work productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, I also write books. Um, my first book was published back in 2014, and I just um, finished writing the manuscript for my second book, which will be published in early 2025. Nice. Um, and then I, I help leaders consult, you know, consult with leaders on work design, how to mm. actually design systems that enable work to be better for people mm. to thrive. So that's my business hat. Then my other hat is at the University of Pennsylvania. I am an instructor in the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program. Mm -hmm. Um, I also am a senior trainer for the Penn Resilience Program. Mm. And I do research out of the Positive Psychology Center there. Okay. And then my biggest hat, I think, is being a mom of three high school aged teenagers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that takes a pretty big hat. Yeah. Yeah. And that's (laughs) really fun and, and very deeply meaningful. Yeah. I I can only imagine. Um, yeah, I don't have kids, but I, I always, that, that age, I mean, I can only imagine the, the fun of seeing people turning, transitioning into adults. Yeah. Just must be such a wild experience. It's incredible. Yeah. It's yeah. really, it's bittersweet in a way because you see, I can, I can see that. a phase, a whole phase ending, right? Mm-hmm. But it's so exciting for this other phase. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff, obviously, that you covered in terms of what you do. And 
I think, I think we'll touch on a bit of all of that. Um, but I, I think this idea of meaning at work is one that, that really resonates and really feels worth exploring a little bit because on the, on the surface, I think people can hear that and go, well, yeah, of course. And then I think the question becomes how, how does that happen? And is it available to everyone? Right. Because I think, um, some people might be like, well, if I'm a doctor or, uh, you know, certain types of jobs, like meaning it comes naturally. But if I work at the local paper company, how could I do that? How could I find meaning? So, um, maybe at just a high level, can any job bring meaning and, and how can it? That's such a great question, and it's exactly why I went to graduate school, right? I was mm. really curious about that. In my own experience, um, before I started my business, I actually uh, grew up in advertising mm. and in um, working you know, in account management and in different agencies and different leaders and sometimes doing the exact same work, it felt really deeply meaningful. And mm. I was excited to go to work. I had some uh, great ideas. I was heard and um, people cared about me and what I did on the weekend. And mm -hmm. and then in, in another agency, it was the opposite. Mm. Um, yeah, I didn't feel like my opinions mattered. I was just completely overworked. Um, and so I, I was really interested to find like in the same industry, same kinds of accounts, like what is the difference? Can any job be meaningful? Um, and so what research finds, including my own research, is that, yes, every job can and I really believe should be meaningful. Nice. And uh, meaning, you know, from my research comes from three main sources and um, my my research partner and colleague and friend, Wes Adams, and I created a framework that we called the three C's mm. um, that describes these sources. So the first one is community. Okay. So meaning comes from feeling a sense of belonging to our mm -hmm. workplace community, right? So mm -hmm. having people who care about us, um, not just as somebody who produces great work, but mm -hmm. as individuals, right? Having yeah. friends at work, that's mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. um, then the second C is contribution. And mm -hmm. that's what you talked about when you talked about surgeons or people who work in you know, nonprofit, social mm -hmm. work, social impact work. Um, and that that is um, what people mostly think of when they think of meaningful work. They're thinking about right. purpose. Mm -hmm. But even even having a strong purpose is not enough to make work meaningful because a lot of mm -hmm. surgeons sometimes lose the meaning of their work or people yeah. in social impact. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to understand our contribution to that purpose, mm -hmm. the impact that we make. Right. So I like to think about it as like our contribution activates purpose, right? Okay. So contribution. Mm -hmm. And then the final C is challenge. Mm -hmm. We need um, people who believe in us, believe mm -hmm. in our potential and give us really meaningful and challenging opportunities to grow and expand our skills. So mm -hmm. community, contribution, and challenge, those three make work really meaningful. Yeah. I mean, they all sort of make sense. As soon as you say them, I'm like, yeah, I, I definitely need those three things. And I think it, it it sort of begs the question: What 
what keeps those things from showing up in, in a lot of workplaces? Because I, I, I'm sure you've found some of these numbers, but I, it feels like based on just what I read and stuff that a lot of people aren't finding meaning at work. Mm-hmm. So That's, what, yeah. what's blocking those three C's from, from being activated in, in a lot of places? So a few things we found. So a huge part of community, um, the first C, a huge part of that is um, is when is this alignment between you know who I am and what I value, mm-hmm. and the organization, and what what does the organ what are the values of the organization, mm-hmm. right? And people more and more are looking for that alignment, mm-hmm. and what we find is that uh, it, it, like that emerged across the three studies that we did, um, and as a as a critical ingredient for meaningful work is alignment between what the leader says and then what they do. So mm-hmm. this like idea of walking the talk and role modeling mm-hmm. is huge. Yeah. It is not not sufficient. That alone doesn't make work meaningful, but mm-hmm. it kills meaning really fast. It is like yeah. the single biggest destroyer of meaning um, around. And so that's one of the things like leaders who, you know, and 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 not to say like a hundred percent of the time you're going to be perfect because sometimes <laughs> there's conflict between two values, for example, sure. and you know, let's say we're going to choose teamwork or client service, and sometimes mm-hmm. you have to work really hard and to the detriment of um of of your people's well-being that day, for example, mm-hmm. um, because you're trying to deliver on something. Um, but just being clear and explaining, being transparent about. Mm-hmm why it is that you're making those decisions. So explaining the decisions is a really big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's one thing that gets in the way a lot that we see um, in our research is yeah. this lack of like um, walking the talk or one of our clients calls it the say-do gap. Mm, I like that. <laughs> and I, I definitely experienced that gap. And and I it makes me wonder like, what – What's driving that behavior, right? I mean, you talk about transparency and I think, you know, when I've been on some leadership teams, there's debate about that, right? Like how much should we reveal about the the nitty gritty of what we're doing and the reasons behind it? Is it too much information? Does it put a burden on teams to know some of those things? So how do you consult with with clients that you work with on that? area of what what is the best way to keep that gap tight and to be transparent in a way that that doesn't put too much on uh, the folks who are doing the work day to day um what do you mean by putting too much on the folks well that are i doing think the, the work? fear is like if we tell them that we need to um do this because I've had conversations with a client who is not sure that we're going to be their partner by the end of the year, mm. something like that. Where, okay. So as a, as a leader, part of you wants to say, I want you to know so that we're all in this. And then a part mm-hmm. of you may want to go, hmm, I, that might be a burden for somebody to bear where they don't feel like they can do much about it. And so then is that information helping them? So that often is the battle with the transparency thing is you think you're protecting the interests of your people. Um, and I guess the question I would have is, 
where do you fall on those kinds of things? Like, do you think it's better to reveal that information and then figure out how to coach the team around that? Or are there times where it makes sense to withhold something? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I am trying to think of examples, you know, from my interviews and, and the, mm-hmm. the, the organizations I work with. And, you know, there's some that are um, on the extreme, like one of their values. Uh, and I'm so HubSpot, who, mm-hmm. they're a company, a tech company um, in based in Cambridge, but they're global and they are one of the the organizations we studied. So they're mm-hmm. an exemplar organization. They work really hard to um, to treat their people well, to have a culture of well-being and meaning. Mm-hmm. And one of their values is transparency. So that they really live and breathe that. And so they're probably mm-hmm. like the most extreme example um, in the organization we study where they um, they let employees access their financial data at every mm-hmm. level. And so they're, they're fully transparent. Yeah. Um, some other organizations, you know, are, are not that transparent and kind of try mm-hmm. to toe the line a little bit and find where that line is. Mm-hmm. And I would say you can, you can, um, you can be vulnerable and, um, and transparent without um, having to reveal everything. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if, if let's say you are at risk of losing an account mm-hmm. and you need um, your people to work extra for a week, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. As somebody who might be that person working the extra long hours, mm-hmm. you know, would you prefer to just say, hey, just work extra. We need this done for this week. Yeah. Or, you know, would you prefer if somebody said, hey, we have, we're having a lot of discussions. We really want to ensure that we keep this client. They're Mm -hmm. one of our, you know, longest term clients. We have to refresh our relationship with them. We want to make sure we're delivering the highest quality service. Mm -hmm. We're pitching at the end of the week. Can we have Mm -hmm. all hands on deck? What concerns, what ideas do you have? You know, Mm -hmm. what have you learned about your conversations with them over the past week that, that will, you know, and so like bringing yeah. people under the fold, maybe without saying like they told us they're firing us, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think I lean towards that personally because I I like to know, yeah, you know, and I think as as a leader, I think sometimes it, it's like there needs to be some coaching slash training on on how to how to deliver and communicate weighty information in a way that empowers your team mm-hmm. versus like scares the crap out of them. Right. Because I think exactly. like you can get to the, like, Oh my God, hair on fire, right. we're doomed. And then your whole team falls under that versus the reality of our business. Sometimes clients, you know, show up and say, we want to consider some other things, but we also want you to to look at the business maybe differently and see what you guys can bring. Who's with us that. So sometimes it's just as simple as, communication and how you show up right like how you're framing the conversation Mm -hmm. because honestly like humans have like a big built-in bs detector you know what i mean (laughs) and so it's worse if you're trying to do like the whole toxic 
positivity thing and pretend mm-hmm. like nothing to see here all yeah good. like people know and then you're you have the conversations in in the meeting and then you have the conversations about the meeting that are mm-hmm. happening in the hallways and that's <laughs> not conducive to meaning at work yeah no i get that i think that that, that bs detector is i think people under underestimate sometimes just how strong that is yeah. and that like I think that should probably push us to be as transparent as we can be, but also be as um, uplifting as we can be with the way we deliver that information and and show people the way through whatever yes. the challenge is so that they're not stuck. A hundred percent. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, one way to do that um, is to lean on values. I mean, mm. that came up again and again, Yeah. Um, whether it, you know, hopefully it's the organizational values that are developed and are um, more than words on the wall. It's mm-hmm. part of the language and people make decisions and know how to act based on those values. And mm-hmm. so if you're leaning on those and making decisions based on those values, it becomes a little easier, not easy, but a yeah. little easier to explain mm-hmm. these the decisions and be transparent. Yeah. And you tie that- it back to the values. I think that's a great point. I know I've I've coached a few people who who when they start to really dig into the values, they find ways then to express those values even through the requests like this really supports our value of X or recognizing somebody for doing something that supports the values and not just in private, but maybe in a way that goes, you know, that other people can see, oh, this is how I do it. This is how I show up with those values. And what, what I find interesting about the values conversation is there are some companies, and I know your research really focused on these exemplar companies who, who probably, at the very least, had clearly stated values and did their best to live by them. Those were actually criteria to participate in our study. Oh, okay. So all the yeah. companies did. All of them that. did, yeah. 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 So when I think back on my career, and I, I you mentioned advertising, and that's where my career has been, what I've noticed is... I would say there's probably at least half the places I've worked. I have no idea what their values were. Right. Like they didn't even come up. And so now you may be interpreted, you defaulted to, well, I guess their values are some mix of, you know, work us to the bone and uh, be bad at communicating because that's what I'm experiencing. Um, do you notice that like in people you talk to, like if you don't, clearly state, articulate, and help people connect to those values, that there's sort of this vacuum that just gets filled with whatever's showing up day to day? A hundred percent, yes. Because, you know, culture exists whether you state it and talk about it and are intentional about creating the kind of culture you want or Mm -hmm. not, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, Ideally, it's it's built intentionally around shared values and then behaviors that, you know, that are driven from these values. But you're absolutely right. If there's no effort behind um, doing that work and and then reinforcing it every day and every action and every meeting and every conversation, mm-hmm. then then they will emerge and, you know, they'll be what. Yeah, well, it gets talked about in the in the water cooler for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think I just wonder if if some people don't realize that because you think on some level that would be obvious, but yet, but I think not everybody recognizes that like 
people are talking and experiencing some kind of culture and values no matter what. And therefore, wouldn't it behoove you to, to make the effort, make the investment? And, and it connects me to some things that, that I think you mentioned. I don't know whether it's on your site or I watched some of, some of the videos uh, that you've done or podcast episodes you've done. There's two stats that show up that demonstrate the importance of meaningful work and really showing up this way. And one is you said meaningful work makes people 69% less likely to leave a company. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly in the world of advertising, where turnover is like a third every year, my God, that, that number should jump out at people. And then, you know, I think you use this phrase, meaning is the new money, or somebody uses that phrase. Mm-hmm. And you said something like each employee uh, who, who feels they are doing meaningful work brings an extra like $10,000 worth of value to right. a company. So those, those to me feel like slam dunk cases for creating meaning at work. And yet not everybody is, is making this investment. What, what do you think is blocking them from taking that step? I, I think, I think that there has been a, a shift in the right direction, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard to organizational transformation and culture change, you know, is not, Mm -hmm. it's not like overnight work. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, it just takes time. It takes effort. It takes attention. Mm -hmm. And, and we're all busy, like leaders, everybody's busy with their day to day with trying to just like get through their to-do list and email Mm -hmm. and and all the stuff that we all Mm -hmm. know about. Yeah. Um, And so I think because of that, you know, so Lori Santos, who's a, a Yale happiness uh, professor, and she has a, a, a podcast and, and mm-hmm. a Coursera course and everything. And she she calls this gap between like knowing and doing the G.I. Joe fallacy, right? Because mm. G.I. Joe, I guess at the end of the episodes, they used to say, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Ah, and okay. she says that knowing is actually much less than half mm. the battle. And so I think the data, this data you talked about, and there's there's tons of other data. So the data mm-hmm. has been out there for decades. Yeah. Um, and I think there's two reasons why um why it hasn't been um executed on yet, right? One mm-hmm. is because like, okay, meaningful work is is great and it's important. Great. I'm convinced. How do I do it? So there's, mm-hmm. there's, it's been lacking some kind yeah. of like actionable framework of mm-hmm. leadership practices. Mm-hmm. And then two, I think there hasn't been like culturally, uh, globally, a shift that was strong enough, like a tipping point to mm-hmm. demand that. And I think that, that both of these problems, you know, are kind of being solved. There's a solution yeah. out to both. One, I think the pandemic was this this huge tipping point, mm-hmm. right? Where people had the chance to to step back and question their relationship to work a little mm-hmm. bit, right? Because once yeah. everything halted and we went home and we kind of stepped off from our rut and our routine, Mm-hmm. We saw things with clear eyes. And yep. and so people ask, like, what do I want from work? Mm-hmm. You know, what does my job do? Like, d- does it even matter what mm-hmm. I do when I want yeah. it to matter? And then on, on top of that, Gen Z has entered the workforce mm-hmm. in, in large numbers. And they really, really want 
values alignment. They want meaningful work. I just wrote an article recently on LinkedIn called The Meaning Blind Spot, pulling mm. together data from a ton of different uh, research that has been published in the last year or two about, you know, leaders think that people are leaving for because they want more money or more perks and people are saying, I want meaningful work. Yeah. And so there's like this bit of a gap, but I think that gap is closing. And then the second one, the having practical tools and um and leadership practices mm -hmm. is what um what my research has been doing you know mm -hmm. for the past three years and we have a suite of practices that we found that really do increase mm -hmm. um people's sense of meaning at work mm -hmm. and i'll say like it's not like if you think about about your the people you love the most mm -hmm. right so think about what do you want for them what do you want for for you know your siblings your parents mm -hmm. your, your mm -hmm. spouse whoever so what do you want for them oh god i mean I, happiness is such a generic term but a, a sense of of happiness of, of value a sense of connection to to other people in the world around them um i think maybe a sense of peace with the way the way their lives are that they that they feel at home in themselves you know i think those are the things that show up immediately for me yeah yeah I, for me too and i think mm -hmm. most people you know that i ask this question to in workshops or yeah. or in conversations say very similar things mm -hmm. what what people don't say is um, I want them to make a lot of money and have good benefits. That's what I want, you know. <laughs> and then what they don't also say, also don't say is, you know, I hope that they are, um, you know, that they don't, that they're not depressed. And I hope mm -hmm. that they're not anxious. Yeah. Like you don't hope for the the not bad. You mm -hmm. want the good, right? Yes. And so, so I, I really believe like it's not even enough for work to not suck. Mm -hmm. That's not enough. I agree. Yeah. Like we need to aim higher. Like mm -hmm. workplaces should be engines of well-being. They should mm -hmm. should really contribute, not just to getting us to neutral. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the skills of of um alleviating suckiness mm -hmm. or you know, <laughs> mental illness, for example, are very different from the mm -hmm. skills of building thriving, mm. right? And yeah. so there's two sets of skills and, and both of them are important. Mm -hmm. Both of them are important, but it's the, the, the minimizing the negative is only half of the equation, right? Yeah. And so positive psychology really, really looks at how do we build more of the positive? Mm. And so um, at work, I believe that, that that building of the positive comes from work that's meaningful because mm -hmm. when you look at data, on um on studies you know about meaningful work it mm -hmm. leads to all the things that um that that leaders care about so mm -hmm. productivity you mm -hmm. know retention engagement so mm -hmm. meaningful work is the upstream factor mm -hmm. that leads to the outcomes that leaders care about yeah and that, that that's an interesting note because i i do think we tend to think about the the results, right? The lack of engagement, the people flying out the door, um, and you're 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 putting band aids on those things with like right. perks or whatever those kinds of things, thinking that's going to solve it versus 
going further upstream and going, you know, people are craving meaning, people are craving um, a sense that that what they do for eight plus hours out of the day matters and it connects to who they are, right? I mean, that's the thing that always just sort of blows my mind when people are dismissive of the idea that work can or should be meaningful. It's like, this is almost half our waking lives yes. is work. So why shouldn't it at least not be terrible? And that's like, but but why shouldn't it be a chance for us to express ourselves and to, to find ways to, to bring the best parts of ourselves out into the world? Because we don't have that many other opportunities to do that. You know, this is one of the main avenues for that for us. So um, I love that you're focusing on this. And I love, you know, you talked about how the research led to some very concrete tools. And I, I think, you know, what I, what I noticed, you know, you talk about, I think it's the 10 principles of highly meaningful work. And I, I really love these because I think even you mentioned it in maybe one of your talks about this, like they're not some crazy thing that only like 1% of companies can do. Like you look at them and you go, we can all do this. Right. I mean, I think, you know, you talked a little bit about this, but just the notion of like, hiring people who care about achieving the same thing as you do. Like that's that values thing. Um, how, how can you, how can you get to that in, in the interview process reasonably quickly? How do you find people are able to, to, to find that connection in that process? So in, um, in the best organizations that we studied, they mm -hmm. have uh, a values interview Hmm. That is separate from the skills-based interview, okay. right? And so um, usually it can maybe somebody in HR that's, uh, you know, more focused on culture mm -hmm. and they ask behavioral interviewing questions mm -hmm. about a time when something, for example. So one of the, one of the organizations we studied is Zappos mm -hmm. and they have you know very famous for their culture um mm -hmm. they actually have a consulting branch that helps other organizations oh, okay. they did I, I don't know if they still do now that yeah. they're part of Amazon but um you know one of their 10 values and and they have a very clear uh values interview process actually and and what they told us is you know let's say we have a an engineer who um, has the exact skills we need. We need to fill this position right away. Mm -hmm. um, the team loves their skills. They're going to help us get it, get us to the next level, mm -hmm. but they fail. There's any red flags on their values interview. We don't hire them no matter what. Mm. So, and so one of their values, um, well, their main value is to live and deliver wow, right? So they're mm -hmm. all about wow. Yeah. Um, but one of their quirky values is, um, to be fun and a little weird, right? Oh, like uh, yeah. Which is nice. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, part of their culture and their personality. And mm -hmm. so they ask questions like, oh, tell me, you know, how did you make your past work environment fun? Yeah. You know, what's something weird that you like to do? Mm. So, you know, things yeah. like that. And so you get yeah. to that. Um, and, and then not only having... Um, questions that are values-based and behavioral. Mm -hmm. So you're asking, oh, tell me about a time when. So mm -hmm. you're trying to get to the behaviors that they exhibited, right, to mm -hmm. match your values. But then also 
having some kind of scorecard where you measure their responses um mm-hmm. just so you can you can remove some of the bias yeah right Mm-hmm. There's so much bias in interview and mm-hmm. we tend to like people that are similar to us. We tend yeah. to write, oh, we had, we both have kids in high school. Oh my God, mm-hmm. your kid wrestles my, so yeah. like to have that um, scorecard mm-hmm. um, and then, uh, and then really, really be clear about what are your guidelines and when, you know, most of the organizations in our study that are these exemplar organizations will not hire someone if they exhibit um, red flags on their values. I love that. I, yeah. I feel like some places will we'll talk the talk, right? Like these are our values, but then like when circumstances squeeze you, mm-hmm. um, it can be really easy to jump off the, the values bus and start to just go to the like, ah, I just need it. I need somebody now. And so I love that, that there are organizations who, who stand by that even when somebody's probably screaming in their ear, I need somebody. Right. And it's like, we will get you somebody, but imagine what happens if we hire that person who doesn't share our values. We can't unwind that very easily, you know? Yeah. Um, and, so and who you let in, um, you know, to your organization really shapes the culture, mm-hmm. right? So if you start so making much. exceptions over time, yeah. it changes things. And mm-hmm. it, it just takes like one bad apple. There's a lot of research Absolutely. on the influence of like one toxic worker mm-hmm. in poisoning the well. So yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's important. And um, gosh, we have so many stories. We, you know, Chick-fil-A was one of our um, organizations. They were mm-hmm. super values driven organization that, I'm not saying like I agree with their values or right. even, but but they're super values driven they're, they're and, driven that and way. exemplar yeah. and they uh, I mean they were very careful about who is allowed to open a franchise and be a franchisee. <laughs> yeah. The, the a franchisee goes through a year long interview process wow. including um often their family members are interviewed they really try to get to that person's character and like who they are. Right. That's so we tend to hire people based on what they know, right? Mm-hmm. What do they know? But based on character, it's um, a much uh, more long-term play. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, you know, again, when we talk about culture in a lot of places, we'll say, you know, there's a lot of value around culture. Um, and, and what I wonder for some companies who, who say that is how can – how can you get them to realize, and maybe, I don't know if there's any quantifiable numbers you can attach to the value of culture, because that I think is where you might get people to defend their culture the way they might defend some other parts of their business, whether it's the financial side or, or, or some of the policies and processes that they defend. It's like, if you allow that culture to weaken, its impact is not simply that people might be grumbly at work. It's like productivity goes down, uh, you know, people aren't reaching their potential turnover goes up and there's, there's a literal cost to that. Have you ever helped anyone with that connect those dots at all? Is that part of what you do? Yeah, I do a lot of, um, culture transformation work mm-hmm. with organizations. It's slow work, depending, yeah. especially on the size of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the, the value of it is 
kind of a living and breathing thing, right? Mm -hmm. So people feel better coming to work to have better conversations, sometimes mm -hmm. um, difficult conversations, but you're not, you're like, you're, you have the psychological safety to yeah. address issues and not bury them and, and mm -hmm. a much more open kind of culture. Um, it keeps people there longer. So mm -hmm. um, definitely a reduction in turnover. So that, so we can measure some of the outcomes, yes. right? That mm -hmm. since, so since we started working together so we measure uh we measure uh some of these these very concrete metrics mm -hmm. and we also measure we often will administer our survey for for uh meaningful work you know leadership practices that lead to mm -hmm. meaningful work and we can measure that over time oh, so cool. at the start before we started working together these were the measures and like six months in, a year in. And so we mm -hmm. do um we do have data that, yeah. that supports. And then also <clears throat> there was a study that was published last year um, by researchers from Oxford and MIT and uh and other universities. Mm -hmm. And um it's the first study, which is super exciting, to um link happiness so well-being greater well-being at work mm -hmm. with higher productivity mm -hmm. so there's been a lot of um a lot of uh correlational studies like yeah okay. when people are happier at work they tend to be more productive but this was the first study that showed like causal evidence oh, wow. of that That's awesome um and so it's really exciting and i think it's going to open the doors for even more studies of that mm -hmm. nature to be done and so even if you're a leader who does not care at all about your people's well-being, mm -hmm. whether or not they're happy, whether or not they're experiencing meaning at work, and mm -hmm. I only care about money, that's yeah. all I care about, yeah. you know, then well-being is your biggest lever. Like mm -hmm. it is the uh, best way for you to reach the the single outcome that you do care about if that is money yeah. or productivity. Yeah. And I think- there are people like that for sure. Yeah. And then I think people gen tend to fall on a spectrum and depending on, you know, wh where you fall, like you're at least going to be like, all right, I need to know, like, if I'm going to invest time and money in some of these efforts, there is a payoff. So that's a wonderful thing. And I think, you know, you mentioned like, well-being is your best lever. And I, I think about, you know, right, not even just right now, but I would say in the last 20 years or so, a lot of businesses have been kind of operating from a like growth is hard to come by mindset. So that's why you see so many times where there's efforts to cut costs and cut costs yeah. and cut costs. And what what I see in this connection between well-being and things like productivity and, and financial benefit for the company is this might be a way of of reframing your thinking of like my only option isn't to cut costs. I can actually invest in my people. And even if that may not unlock um, you know, the growth in the way I traditionally think about it, investing in, you know, equipment or whatever, like it becomes a new framing for achieving growth. And, and, and has anybody started to notice that in, in your experience? You know, I, I spend so much time with exemplar organizations uh, who have yeah. noticed that so long ago. Yeah. Um, but 
the organizations that I work with that are working towards becoming exemplar have noticed mm -hmm. that shift. Yeah. One word of caution, though, like I was being <laughs> cheeky when I said, like, even if you only care about this thing, yeah. you know, um, we like I said earlier, the BS detectors, like we also know, like, if you're just doing this to get more out of me too. And if it's yeah. not, you know what I mean? If it's not, Oh, I get that. Uh, yeah. If it's not true, if you're mm -hmm. like, Oh, here, here, I care about your well being, but like really mm -hmm. I just want more productivity out of you. Like that <laughs> doesn't work. Yeah. Um, there's this whole like dark side, you know, to meaningful work, which mm -hmm. is expl exploitation. Like yeah. I'm going to give you work that's really meaningful you know, so so the 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 seminal study on that was done with zookeepers, mm. right? Um, people who find their work deeply, deeply meaningful. They're taking care of um, often species that are you know at risk of uh, being extinct, mm -hmm. and they love these animals, and they are underpaid, mm. and they are they overworked, and so. Yeah. Um, so invest in well-being is good business, but do it because it's a worthwhile pursuit in itself. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I, 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 I can see how it could be turned into exploitation uh, with with the wrong mindset behind yeah. it. Um, and I also do think like if you're just sort of miming the efforts versus actually like getting yourself into those efforts and believing exactly. in them, it won't pass the sniff test for a lot of right. people. And so those benefits won't actually show up. Because I have to imagine those benefits are deeply connected to our psychology um, and we have to actually feel it, not just yeah. simply see like, oh, we have a, a well-being program at work. Like, exactly. We need to feel the, the effort behind it. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I yeah. often, you know, I often have people do an exercise where um, I ask them to think about a time in their career Mm -hmm. where work felt really meaningful mm -hmm. like one one specific point in time mm. right i don't know if you have a story that you can share it's so it's funny for me because when i think of examples where work felt meaningful it really has nothing to do with like the particular project i was working on it has to do with the people i was working with feeling supported um feeling like when we got through that project that there would be a moment to celebrate um a moment to recognize um and that throughout the process you felt and i know you talk about some of these things things like autonomy um like the fact that you were trusted to take on your part of that job um and not be micromanaged um there's a word that I don't know if you if you use this, but it shows up for me as like immersion that like I'm included. I'm I'm deeply a part of the work. I've had those experiences. Fortunately, in my career, I've had them a lot, but it really starts with the leadership sort of bestowing that sense of trust on you and and being alongside of you and knowing that they're alongside of you more so than Oh, it was a project that, you know, saved the whales and therefore it felt meaningful to me. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And you're you're definitely not alone in these experiences and the words mm -hmm. that you use to describe yeah. them. Um, you know, we that was part of our research. One of the questions we asked every mm -hmm. person we interviewed, it's a 
you know, the question we ask most uh, workshops we do. Mm-hmm. And and the answers always kind of come back to to these things you talked about, too. It was about the people. And I felt mm-hmm. trusted. And, you know, I had autonomy to do this. And mm-hmm. somebody believed in me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I was so connected. And so even if it is because you end up, ended up saving the, the world, you yeah. know, or with something, but it's because somebody showed you, gave you that opportunity, but mm-hmm. then connected the dots to the impact. I mean, I'll share. Yeah. My sister called me yesterday. My sister's a dentist. She has um, a practice and she also teaches cosmetic dentistry. Mm-hmm. And she told me that she got a um, a note um, in the mail. And it was this beautiful note from a student who um, is a few years behind her. Um, she So my sister also has three kids, three teenagers. Mm-hmm. And this this woman is a uh, is pregnant now, so she's just about to start a family, and she mm-hmm. started her practice a few years ago. And she sent my sister this beautiful note that just said, "I have learned so much from you, not just in class, but also about how to manage, you know, running your own um, dental practice w- with being a mom. I was so mm-hmm. nervous about how things were going to change, and you're such a role model. And I mean, it was wow. such a beautiful note. My sister mm-hmm. was crying when she yeah. she just, you know, and so it's about that. Like, sure, mm-hmm. she gets meaning from going and teaching the class, which she loves, and she gets mm-hmm. me. But gosh, getting that note right yeah. and and knowing the impact, knowing how what you do matters. Mm-hmm. Huge, right? That's so Maybe, huge. Yeah. yeah. That's lovely. I love that story. And I, I feel like it's almost like when you write those kinds of notes, you're almost not aware of how deep that impact is. I mean, I, I got an email the other day from somebody that I've talked to in some coaching programs that I'm a part of. And just out of the blue, she wrote me like three sentences, basically just saying how much she appreciated this podcast and like that some of the the thoughts that come up during the podcast really just made her think about things differently. And she was so grateful for that. And I was like, so I was sharing with my wife and I'm like, this is like one of the most awesome notes I've ever received in my life. And, you know, it's just, it's hard to express like how important that is to make you feel seen i mean that that phrase almost gets overused at times i feel seen but it's like that's why like you're showing up to to try to have those kinds of impacts so if one person just confirms that you're 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 connecting to them in some way it's like it becomes like fuel like it's like i can live off of that for a long time and it it's a good reminder for those of us so when we do feel those things from somebody to just take a few minutes to share that note just doesn't have to be long. No, um, how valuable it is to people. Yeah, I mean, you know, gratitude and um, the gratitude letter is one of the most well-researched um, mm. interventions in positive psychology, and yeah. it has so many great results. And again, it, it's it's it doesn't cost anything. Maybe mm-hmm. a little bit of time. Yeah. But how often do we go about our days and we listen to a podcast and we're like, "Oh, that was a good idea," or yeah. whatever? And mm-hmm. we have the thoughts, we feel the gratitude, but mm-hmm. we don't express it. And how yeah. are people going to know if you don't mm-hmm. tell them, right? And yeah. so that's like such a um, an easy place to start. Um, yeah. So positive feedback, recognition, just mm-hmm. letting people know the value they add um, mm-hmm. is huge to creating a sense of mattering. Yeah. I mean, I, I think 
God, there's, there's so much good stuff there. And there's so much good stuff coming out of the research you talked about. I mean, I, I don't think we can get into all of those 10 points, but I think people should absolutely look them up because they're, they're very practical. Like you can look at it and go, I can do this thing. Um, I think the one that, that might surprise people the most is, is around orientation and onboarding. Um, mm. Because I think, at least in my experience, the onboarding experience is, is usually pretty um, flat. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you might get something. Like I remember one place they gave me some flowers or something. I was like, oh, that's nice, you know. But the organizations you've talked to, like they, they treat onboarding this, the same way they might treat building a new product. I Meaning it's like it's given all the care and love to create like something special. I think you said even sacred, there's rituals. Um, what is it about that 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 adds to the the sense of meaning at work and 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 why why do you think that so many places sort of gloss over that process? I mean that that I'm so glad you you want to talk about this because it was a really unique finding from our research. Mm-hmm. And we had not seen before much research on meaningful work, um, the tie between onboarding and meaningful mm-hmm. work. And yeah. it emerged again and again and again in our study. And we were so excited. And it was one of our um, interviewees that actually used the term sacred moment. She mm. said, you know, at our organization, and that was better up, they do mm-hmm. uh, coaching, virtual coaching yeah. at mm-hmm. scale for organizations. And um, and she told us, she's like, oh, yeah, we, we view onboarding as a sacred moment in a new employee's life. They're joining wow. us. It's, it's as, you know, it's kind of like a moment in time, like their wedding or, you mm-hmm. know, and so they really treat it like that special moment. Um, and and the 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 C that we put that practice under is mm-hmm. community. Yeah. Because the practices that we found that they do really build community. And there's two main buckets of practices that make for a sacred moment onboarding. Okay. One is um cultural assimilation, right? So you want to bring employees under the fold to your culture and your values and how mm-hmm. things are done around here. You want them to to master that, to have a sense of like, all right, I, I know how things are done around here. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is helping them build relationships right away, not just in their team, um, you know, of course, with their manager and their team, but across the organization. Mm-hmm. And so um, for the the cultural mastery practices um, include a lot of storytelling. Mm. Um, again, that was something that emerged in our study that when we were coding the data, we were like, oh my goodness, like so much storytelling. Yeah. And we weren't expecting that, but in mm-hmm. hindsight, it made total sense because yeah. you're talking about meaning and meaning mm-hmm. is all about the stories we tell ourselves and how yeah. we you know, make meaning, how does something mean something. And mm-hmm. so they really lean on storytelling, especially to tell the stories of the values. Mm-hmm. And so let's say one of the values is um, – to be bold. Well, mm-hmm. great. What does that mean here? And yeah. so having somebody say, all right, this is, you know, one time I was, I was uh, pitching an idea to a client and I really wanted to lean into the value of be bold. And so mm-hmm. instead of just presenting the pitch, like we did a whole skit and whatever, I'm yeah. just making this up, yeah, but I get it. like really telling the story of, mm-hmm. of the value. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also rituals. 
It can hmm. be as simple as, you know, Googlers, like new Google employees getting the the hat with the propeller on top. It's like a symbol, yeah. a symbol of something mm -hmm. like a ritual um, yeah. that is infused with meaning. Um, one uh, organization, so Zappos, actually, every new employee, no matter what level, becomes a customer service representative for a week because oh, wow. their main goal, they they are a customer service company that sells shoes, right? Mm -hmm. Versus like a retail yeah. company. And so everybody went through that. It could be that's awesome. A little graduation ceremony, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So coming up with rituals that um I think it's Airbnb that has like a human tunnel and people run through it because it's like up their values all about belonging to the world, right? Mm. Um, so that's one. And then the other one is all about building relationships. And there's a few ways that people do that. Mm -hmm. One is by having cohorts um, on board together from across the organization, across yes. locations, um, but also taking it a step further. So um, at Google, after the week-long onboarding, you know, they make sure before they leave that they schedule um they schedule meetings every six months or every three months with the other Nooglers to touch mm. base. So it's kind of built into the system. Oh, cool. So, the, yeah. And then um, at BetterUp, they make a Slack channel for that onboarding cohort. Mm. And so they're in touch. And then every six months or so, they're like, oh, congrats on your six-month anniversary. Um, mm -hmm. And so those are very simple. Yeah. Um, organizations like Microsoft and others do the onboarding buddy program, mm. right, where you um, – Got, get paired with a buddy from a different department, maybe mm -hmm. somebody across the organization. And that can be kind of like your first office friend, somebody yeah. where you call and like, oh my gosh, I can't figure out how to find that document. Like, can you help mm -hmm. me? Do you know this person? I need to work with them and I've never met them. Can you introduce mm -hmm. me? Yeah. Um, so little things like that. And do I have time to tell a story about that? Yeah, please do. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So my family and I moved to, so I live in Massachusetts outside of Boston. Mm -hmm. And we used to live in a town um, about 45 minutes away from where we live now. And mm -hmm. um, about eight years ago, we moved to our current town. Mm -hmm. And we had three kids in elementary school at that time, right? So fifth, fourth, and second grades. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those moments like in a parent's life that you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is a fork in the road moment. Either yeah. the kids are going to look back at this moment and be like, oh my God, our parents ruin our lives and they're <laughs> going to be in therapy because of us, yes. right? <laughs> or it's going to be like, oh, kids are resilient. It was fine. Mm -hmm. It was wonderful. It was great. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were really nervous and we mm -hmm. knew, my husband and I, that uh, the school would be a huge part of what made or break, you know, making and breaking it for the kids, right? Yeah. The school would really matter. And, and we had done a ton of research and we had picked this town and we moved right before school started. And it was just like very stressful, as you can imagine, moving yeah. is always stressful. And a week before school started, so so the school had asked us to fill out a questionnaire about each kid so they could place them and all that. Mm -hmm. And then a week before school started, I got an email from the school principal. And she said, hi, you know, welcome. I'd like to invite you and the kids for a private tour of the school before school starts. I want to show their classrooms and where they're going to be. They can ask me any questions. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's great. You know, so we yeah. went and did the tour. And she was like really trying to get the kids to be comfortable and show them like the school had like an indoor gym rock wall. And mm. here's where you eat lunch and the recess, like all the things that the kids really care about. Sure. And, you know, they wanted to know how many recesses 
do we get and mm-hmm. like all the things. So they started to feel more comfortable. We're like, all right, this was really great. So that mm-hmm. we're not putting them on the bus that first day. At least we can visualize where they're going to be and, yeah. and they have an idea, right? Mm-hmm. And so we were thanking her. And as we were leaving, she was like, oh, we have this program called the New Families Program here. So I have gone through your questionnaires for each of the kids, and I have found a student in their class that matches their interests and I think is mm. going to be a good buddy for them. And so I've reached out to those families. So expect an no. email from those families. They're going to reach out, and I'm hoping that each kid can connect with their buddy before school starts. So they'll have Mm -hmm. a friendly face to sit with at lunch and in their classroom. Mm -hmm. I started crying. Like I cannot tell you how much that meant to us. Mm -hmm. And we did, we went to the park, they each met their buddies and they were the families that, that, it was not just a lifeline for the kids, like for yeah. my husband and I mm-hmm. to have a family to be like, how do we sign up for soccer? And when does, yeah. which one is the best dance, uh, you know, company around here? Or mm-hmm. where do you buy, what's what's the best sushi restaurant? But yeah. then they also invited us to dinner and, and mm-hmm. you know, introduced us to other families. And one of the families, we are so close with them. Um, that we travel with them all the time. But, you know, like just taking the time to, to read about them and learn who my kids are, right? Who they mm-hmm. are, but then pair them with a buddy who knew, like, who was a good match for them. Yeah. And just Very that extra thoughtful. step, so, so thoughtful. So when I mm-hmm. when I was studying onboarding and hearing these stories, I was like, yeah, that that is a, that was, they treated that as a sacred moment. That was pretty yeah. much an onboarding program, right? Yeah. And, and they went that extra step, and it meant so much. I will never forget that. And I yeah. think, I think that is the difference between a, a, a onboarding that's just paperwork and compliance, and maybe mm-hmm. some flowers. Yeah, and you know, in a sacred moment, onboarding. Oh wow! I, I think that that's an amazing moment. And I think what I what I like about so much of what you're talking about, and this in particular, is it's very thoughtful, and you have to be very intentional about it. But when, when I peel it back and go, okay, how much time does it actually take? It's not a ton of time. No. It's just uh, focused at time where you're bringing your sort of most thoughtful self to that moment where you're reading up on the kid and then kind of looking through and going, oh, this kid would be a great match and thinking about those connections. It's, it's like this much work for this much benefit and I think what I also love about that, both there and in any onboarding, is it's not simply the new person or the new family or the new people who are benefiting from it, but by by involving the team and and other you know or other families, you're reinforcing their investment and their love for this place because they're getting a chance to be valued as somebody who gets to welcome somebody in and gets to be sort of standing up for uh, and and living and sharing the values of this new community that you're stepping into so what a what a benefit to all parties i, I got to imagine that that impact is 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 across the board not simply the folks who are stepping into that that new space a hundred percent and you know if you even take it more broadly is uh, an impact to the organization so mm-hmm. i was such a fan i mean the school was 
an incredible school and, and a huge, strong sense of community. But I just volunteered for everything that I could volunteer for because like it was so me, I couldn't spend enough time there and yeah. give more of myself because it was such a, a beautiful, warm welcome as somebody who was brand new, who was unsure if we would, you know, belong, if we would make friends, mm -hmm. if they would make friends, just yeah. having that little bit of extra attention meant so much that mm -hmm. I, I did you know, volunteer for everything and donate and and do the things that parents do at school for mm -hmm. sure. I, I was yeah. I was excited too. Yeah, yeah. I think that's such a wonderful part of it. And I think, um, you know, on that note, maybe we can we can start to to wind down the conversation because that's such a wonderful note. I think to to end on. I think I would love to just ask you a couple of final questions because I'm, you know, I think we, in some ways this next question you may have answered some of it because some of the work you do leads us there, but I'd love to just see where it shows up for you. But, you know, as I think about this whole idea of desuckifying, and I think you make a great point. When I say desuckifying, I'm definitely thinking beyond the taking yeah. the suck out and thinking like, where, what do we do to help it become a really positive experience? So in your mind, if you had a magic wand, mm. you could wave it and, and create this fully desuckified world of work for people. What does it look like? So um, if I had a magic wand and I had to start with one wish, mm -hmm. my first wish would be for people to really feel a sense of connection and belonging. Mm. I mean, research on on positive psychology and happiness, you know, there's there's many um, pillars of well-being, but relationships mm -hmm. are number one source. Mm -hmm. of happiness, of well-being, of actually a physical health, mental health, like mm -hmm. across the board. Yeah. And right now there is such a crisis of, mm -hmm. of loneliness and yeah. of disconnection. Mm -hmm. um, so if I had a magic wand, that's where I would start. I would, um, I would create a workplace that prioritizes um, connection, prioritizes relationships, making time for each other, being there for each other, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and bringing out the best in people so that they can bring their best selves to work yeah. and connect in that way. So, mm. um, so that, that's where I would wave my magic wand. I, I love that. I think it connects so clearly to what we just talked about with how that onboarding process in, in, in places can immediately start to form some of those connections. And, you know, it, it makes me wonder, I know who we're sort of trying to wrap up here, but this thought comes up and, and I know you've written about this a little bit. People, you know, talk about, you know, there's the remote and hybrid and, and, you know, in office. And I think in the remote and hybrid world, people maybe struggle a little bit with mm -hmm. this idea of connection. I'm, I'm a big remote proponent and I think there's ways to do it. Do you have any insight into what can help people forge those bonds in a, in a remote setting? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if anybody has like, oh, it, here's the playbook for, mm -hmm. for that yet, right? Yeah. It's, it's still emerging. Mm -hmm. um, well, the data shows that people definitely want flexibility. They mm -hmm. they That's like number one, like right there with meaningful work is meaningful yeah. work and flexibility. Mm -hmm. So people don't want to be mandated back to yeah. an office or, mm -hmm. or, or whatnot. So they they want flexibility, but they also want connection. Mm -hmm. um, and and they're not getting if they're getting one they're not getting the other right yeah. now and that's really tricky and mm -hmm. so what i have seen some organizations do successfully 
to try to start creating this connection and what does it look like in a hybrid and distributed yeah. world. So one of the things is to create neighborhood or home-based teams mm. um, so that, you know, we, let's say your headquarters is in New York, but you have a pocket of people in DC and a pocket of people in, in Austin, Texas mm -hmm. or whatever. And so um, leveraging those, uh, those neighborhoods mm. and creating systems for those people to connect with yeah. each other, whether it's um, creating what HubSpot does, it's a global ice cream day and they mm. want um, everybody to go have ice cream together and they will give you a budget and mm -hmm. people will do it in the office if they're in the office but in the neighborhoods and if they're somewhere that that where they have no co-workers you know mm -hmm. nearby they will bring family members and friends and have yeah. ice cream so connecting okay. that way um, yeah. reddit uh is another distributed company and they do they have budget for people to organize things and it could be like a kayaking trip mm. or whatever so that people can still have autonomy which is so big right now in the yeah. kinds of things that they want to do but they have a budget and support and help mm. organizing those things um yeah. so so that's one way um one way that I, I see people do it successfully. Mm -hmm. Another way is if you are going to bring people together, whether mm -hmm. it's like once a week in the office or twice a week, or whether it's um like an offsite type thing, because and to be really intentional about yeah. when the times that you are together mm -hmm. for the main goal there to be about connection yeah. and relationship building. Yeah, I can see that, right? Because I think maybe in the past, some of those things were were about understanding the state of the business and blah, 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 blah. And maybe there's time for that. But if you're not, if you're not giving people a chance to connect, you might come away from that offsite. Like, I feel like I barely talked to anybody. I feel like I just popped in and popped out versus if it's really immersive. Yeah, it's like, oh, wow, it was only a weekend or a day. But I felt like I know everybody so much better. I can, I can see that in a big way. And um, you know, the other thing that, that I think about here is in the day to day, you know, and this shows up for me as a coach and, and, and even somebody who managed a remote team previously is, is just experimenting, like knowing that building community is a big goal and, and it maybe needs you to be more intentional in a remote setting, just trying things, trying different ways of bringing people together, just doing even if it's a Zoom call and it's just, it's not about work at all. It's just a chance for us to chat for, for an hour or, or whatever, like being willing to try things and learn as a leader, what actually creates that connection. Some of it can be just simply giving people space to work together and not getting, you know, micromanaging with them and letting them form their, their teams and alliances as they do. But I think that's also, a process like, worth I think learning asking people like leaders don't have yeah. to have all the answers yeah like, people know yeah. they know they have ideas they might mm -hmm. suggest something you know yeah. and so I, I think leveraging mm. the expertise and the skills of the people who you hired for their expertise that's a and great their point. experience you know i think it's it's uh, yeah it's so I, easy I mean, to think we have the answers yeah so when 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 like when when people were starting to think about coming back to the office kind mm -hmm. of back in 20 20 maybe 2020 fall winter fall, 2020 yeah. um i developed a framework to think about hybrid work cultures and mm. i call it third culture it's a third culture mm. so it's based on uh on 
uh, work from sociologists on third culture kids. And mm. so they've they've uh, studied kids that grow up in a culture that's not their primary culture. Okay. And so let's say your parents are Americans and, and your passport is you know from the United States, but you grow up in uh France, for example, mm -hmm. because your dad might be a diplomat and might be there. Right. So they've they've studied these kids and mm -hmm. um and they found that that they are they identify with this third culture, right? They are mm -hmm. Americans, they're also French, they speak English and French, but mm -hmm. but they they don't feel a hundred percent in one culture or another, but mm -hmm. they belong with each other. There's like this third culture that emerges mm. between them and their lived experience is very similar to each yeah. other. Um, so I am a third culture kid, okay. you know, because I'm from Brazil, born and raised, my family's there. Okay. But then I moved to the US in high school and moved back and came back. So mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's this kind of liminal state that you mm -hmm. live in, right? Of yeah. you belong nowhere, but you belong everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much that we can learn from that research and that experience yeah. of third culture kids to apply to hybrid workplaces. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and I think it's it just gives leaders another lens through mm -hmm. which um, to see that hybrid experience of one of opportunities. Yeah, it is hard, you know, yeah. and then there's challenges, but mm -hmm. there's also a lot of opportunities there. And how can you leverage what research says about third culture kids to mm -hmm. create, uh, intentionally create a culture, a hybrid culture that enables people to thrive. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important thing. And I think that idea that like, we're still figuring this out. So wherever there's a data point, whatever that is, whether it's, it's from this third culture research, or if it's from, you know, certain organizations, maybe some of these exemplar organizations are starting to see results from certain practices, because I think, you know, and I'm guilty of this at times when I see somebody kind of just being very authoritarian about like, get back to the office. Like I'm very frustrated by it, but I also understand it's coming from fear and it's coming from not knowing. And it's like, I want to go back to what I know because mm -hmm. that's comfortable. And I think that's a natural state for a lot of human beings. We want to have at least a foundation that we can feel comfortable in, and then we can grow from there. So the more we can arm people with information and studies and, and stories from other companies and organizations that are doing this well, the more people might be willing to step out and go, okay, I'm willing to try this because I think there's there's things we can stand on versus just feeling like there's no foundation there. You know? Yeah, I agree completely. Well, um, the, the, the other question I like to ask people, and, and I know I, I told you about this ahead of time, is uh, I use sound effects a lot in my... Uh, mostly in my intro and outro. And if you've, if you've watched or listened to the podcast, you'll, you'll hear cat sounds and, and usually some other random sounds, which are some of the other guests making sounds. And it can be super silly, goofy. It doesn't have to be mean anything. So are, do you have any sounds you'd be willing to share with us today? Yeah. So this uh, question really stumped me. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what am I going to do? Like, I don't, I don't access my creativity through sound much. It's mostly yeah. through words. So mm -hmm. um, the best that I could come up with mm -hmm. is a big sigh. Like, ah, you know, like the feeling mm. of of relief, recognition, yeah. of belonging when you're 
Mm. When you're comfortable, you can be yourself, but also like, oh, we've arrived at this magical destination where work yeah. is really meaningful. So not that's super awesome. exciting, but oh, that's okay. meaningful nonetheless. It's very meaningful and it's very relatable. And it's one of those, um, I know there's probably a word for this, but like when you hear it, you feel it. Yeah. Meaning immediately it, it like drains some of the anxiety out of you to simply even hear a sigh. And then when you do actually sigh, I don't know where that comes from in our body, but we must be holding on to something that's like too much yeah. carbon dioxide or something and we <laughs> get rid of it and suddenly the body feels released, right? So I think that's wonderful. I love it. Um, there's so much communicated through that. Um, yeah, that's great. I think that's definitely uh, a fully desuckified sound effect and it will, oh, good. it will show up somewhere in the intro and or outro of our episode no doubt so, so, God, so i was, so I was worried that i wasn't going to bring uh the best uh, sound oh, no. effect i love that <laughs> i love that that one's fantastic um you know obviously would love to give people a chance to connect with you and the work you're doing so what are what are the best ways to find you online best way to find me is on LinkedIn. I post a ton of, uh, you know, my own research, but other mm -hmm. research that I read in stories and, and mm -hmm. practical ideas. That's where I spend most of my online time. Also mm -hmm. on Instagram, um, it okay. is Tamara Miles for both. Okay. Um, and I also have a website, which is just tamaramiles.com. Nice. Well, I think that's those are nice, easy ways to connect, and I can certainly vouch for the LinkedIn. I mean, we're connected on LinkedIn. I, I, I'm always appreciative of the stuff you post. It just um, feeds my uh, desire for like a combination of hope. You know, I'm always looking for like where where is the hope as we're sort of in this state of flux in the world of work, and then you always have these kind of tangible things, whether it's a practice or a bit of research or something that you can you can not just feel like, oh, this is a dreamer kind of a statement, but it's actually a statement that's got something I can hang on to. So uh, very much recommend everybody following you and, and, and finding hope and real possibility in, in, in the words that you share um, frequently on there. Thank you. That means a lot. That's exactly what I try to do. And possibility is my favorite word. So yeah. I love that you use that to describe. Thank you. It's one of, one of my favorite words as well. And uh, I, I think people will follow you. And also that will give them a chance to, to learn more about the book that's coming out next year as that slowly starts to build towards, towards completion. Um, uh, can you reveal anything about what that book is focused on? It's it's focused on the leadership practices that make work meaningful. So okay. based on our research awesome. and our three C's framework, oh, and it's it. um it's you know it's full of practical ideas, tons of mm -hmm. stories that bring these ideas to life. Um, mm -hmm. And it, I, it, I'm co-authoring it with Wes, who's my research partner, friend, and and nice. business partner. Mm -hmm. um, and we have. So many wonderful organizations and leaders represented. We are really excited. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that as well as just everything else that you're putting out into the world. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you having me and, and this yeah. conversation was great. Yeah, it was really fun. Well, thanks, Tamara. I really appreciate it as well. And uh, look forward to just staying in touch and, and seeing what else you do. Thank you. I look awesome. forward to staying in touch too. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Desuckify Work Podcast. 
And thanks to Tamara for bringing deep insight and delightful wisdom to our conversation. You can follow Tamara on LinkedIn and check out her site at tamaramiles.com. And put a note in your calendar for early 2025 so you can grab a copy of her new book. I put it on mine in all caps because I won't listen to myself unless I'm shouting. Speaking of shouting, you should give me a shout if you'd like to learn more about the work I do. We can set up a free half-hour what-the-heck-is-coaching-all-about session. I promise I'll keep the volume at a reasonable level. Bye, everyone!